Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. Today I'm here with Russell Case. Hello. And our special guest, Timothy Lynch. Hello. Hi, Tim. How are you doing? I, um, I've stopped answering that question. <laughs> uh, it's not, it's not in the realm of possibility any longer. Um, I feel like I'm a bit of a lamenter and if I start, you know, it's just, I've got to include all the aspects of what's happening. Yeah. So you want to speak your truth, right? I absolutely want to speak my truth. And so I kind of just usually bobble my head a bit and say, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that Indian head motion is really starting to like resonate mm. and make a lot more sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like everything and nothing, you know, like it's yeah. all there and I have absolutely no idea. Um, I <laughs> like never good. really had an idea of what was happening, but for sure now is not a time to proclaim that I have any sense of... Uh, what's going on so yeah is some some good some not so good some in between <laughs> well we are very eager to introduce you to our audience and let them know exactly how you're feeling that's what today <laughs> is I all about all right and we want to dig in we want to actually maybe even understand a little bit about how you came to to, to have these feelings you know what sort of what sort of stories do you carry with you um, are you, are you, are you from New York? I'm not from New York. Where um, are you from? I was born in uh, central Connecticut. And is that, is that close? To, that's New York, isn't it? Isn't like kind of it's, a, it's, yeah, it's a suburb of New York, I think. It's officially. a suburb, yeah. That's a suburb <laughs> of New York. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know, like central like, Connecticut, maybe not as much. Southern Connecticut is definitely a suburb of New York. But, yeah. yeah. Would, would you describe that as, as working class? Yeah, that, for where sure. Where are you from? What did your, what'd your parents do? Um, my father spent most of his years in the uh, automotive industry. Um, Mine he, too. No way, really? Yeah, my dad's a mechanic, and my aunt worked at, uh, at Cadillac, and my, my, my uncle and my dad had a car restoration business together until they, they, they had a uh, feud. What, what did your dad do? Uh, my father managed an auto parts store for a while, oh, and then he became a salesman. Mm -hmm. And then he ended up kind of stumbling into the travel business, and now he just sort of does some travel agent stuff on the side. On the side, as he's retired. Mm -hmm. um, and my mother worked for the phone company. I don't know, like the phone company? Was that just, that was a thing back in the day? Like, <laughs> I, I, remember, like, I think it was. The, the phone company. Yeah, we all, that Ma Bell. You know, as I'm thinking about it, I'm like, I don't know, was there an AT&T? She just said I work at the phone company. So that's where she worked. And, um, and then she also worked, um, uh, kind of as a uh, administrative assistant in an automotive um Place. There was, at some point, I worked in this automotive warehouse for about two and a half years as I transitioned um, into college. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, packing totes full of automotive parts and sending them on their way. It was quite a fascinating place to be. Where did you go to college? Um, well, I went to a couple of universities. Um, I went to Southern Connecticut State University uh, in New Haven um, first. Um, I spent a little right time in a community college, but anyway. Right in the backyard of Yale. 
Yeah, in the backyard of Yale, exactly. Yeah, I think it was it was it was called Yale's backyard. I think was the <laughs> <laughs> otherwise known as Southern Connecticut State University. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a tough town. That's a very tough neighborhood. Oh, it is. It's true. Yeah, New Haven is like Yale, and then not Yale. <laughs> you know, right. like, you right. walk one block away from Yale, and you are not in Yale anymore. It's interesting. And then, um, you know, from there, I had a professor at the Southern who was um, on sabbatical from a school. I think she taught out in Minneapolis. And um, it was this painting class that she was teaching us at, in, um, in Connecticut at Southern. And um, one day she started asking us about, like, Bryce Martin and oh. uh, Matthew Barney and, you know, all of these artists. And I'm thinking like, yeah, I have no idea who these, these artists are. And none of the people in our class had any idea, you know, they were all like, you know, who are these artists? And she started telling us about them. And I think it was me who actually said, you know, why don't we take a field trip to New York and like go, you know, see some of these things. Cause none of us have ever had ever experienced any of this work. And so we did, and we went to MoMA and we went to this exhibition that had, um, I'd never seen Bruce Nauman's work before, and he's oh. one of my favorites now, you know, and yeah. um, and some Matthew Barney pieces that were, it was like fairly early, um, fairly early work, and some Jeff Koons. It was kind of this mixed group show, yeah. and it just completely blew my mind. You know, I had, from where I grew up, I had no idea that this kind of work was possible. What what kind of work were you familiar with at that point when you were in class? I can't. I, mean, I couldn't like even a, tell you. Like a de Kooning, was that even on yeah, your radar? Yeah, I think I think so. I think maybe a little de Kooning. Um, I mean, obviously Picasso and right. you know mm. Miro and Kandinsky and you know just like but but even like Marth, Mark Rothko. I don't know if I had heard sure. of Mark Rothko at the point at that point. Well, could you just set up for our listeners because I I I think this is a critical point. Um, how different even a Jackson Pollock or a de Kooning is from what you would encounter with Matthew Barney? Oh, um, it's a huge jump. It's so huge. You know, it's, it's really hard to, oh, I always hesitate to put words to these things, but, um, you know, Matthew's Barney, Matthew Barney's work is just so sort of idea, idea based and ephemeral based at the same time. This, you know, is this video, a lot of video work he makes and drawings and um, it's really off the canvas. You know, that's one way uh, maybe of putting it is it's not, it's not really, I don't, I don't know if he ever made paintings. Um, I have, I have an idea of him like dressed up and painted like a wild rabbit satyr and like hanging upside down in a gallery yeah, you know, you know, just making marks on the on the on the on the high gallery wall, like yeah. that's so radically different from Absolutely. what you get um, in in you know in like these you know post war abstract expressionist paintings, which themselves were difficult for our working class families to kind of get a hold of. Absolutely. So, and yeah, then to try go, to explain this work to my family, you know, is like yeah. out, of, out of the realm. You know, it's like like you're saying the, the thing I remember about seeing Matthew Barney's work that day was he was dressed up as some kind of half animal, half human, and he was sliding between the seats 
um, the backseat of a car, like wedging himself, like squeezing himself <laughs> between the backseat of a car. And I yeah. think the car was really white. It was like white leather or something. And he was dressed in this yeah. white, you know, yeah. costume. It was really just like, wow, this is, this is possible. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. It's a completely different horizon at that point of what is possible. And, and, I want to find out more about, you know, your choices to going into school. But I, I remember coming home to my folks and like, I thought I was doing something really radical by being an abstract painter. And now I'm just fucked. Mm. I don't know. I can't be interesting in this climate. Right. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm into abstract painting right now and I'm totally fucked. Like there's no, <laughs> no like, there's no career coming out of this, you know, yeah. like this is just like, I'm going into this territory, you know, for me, I, I painted in black and white for several years. I don't, maybe like seven years or eight years or something it was only in grayscale. Um, and so what I'm discovering is how much I learned about color in that, in that time. Um, that was totally unexpected. When I went back to color, it's like I could see color in ways that I couldn't had seen it um, before. And I'm just kind of carrying on in that territory of mark making with color. And yeah, I mean, I have no expectations of ever making any kind of career with these paintings. Because as you're saying, like, I'm, you know, I can appreciate Matthew Barney and I can appreciate that sort of work for sure. But, you know, yeah, I mean, as an abstract painter, you're kind of fucked. <laughs> That's yeah. just like how, it, yeah. how it goes. There's, I mean, there's a possibility that you can get into, like, you can get a corporate, a, a corporate connection, mm-hmm. and then maybe you get some large abstract paintings in corporate offices. Sure. Um, if you if you have like a like a like a, a flower genre going, maybe you can you can do, you know, uh, you can you can sell your work that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but as far as being as being both commercially viable and critically received it's an it's just a nightmare oh absolutely unless you know someone who knows someone you know and that's kind of the other entry point right like i have a lot of friends who are fantastic abstract painters and i've spent a lot of time around work i mean i you know have a fairly developed sensibility with these things and you know they're just never going to make it because they're not interested in the knowing somebody who knows somebody part (laughs) you know it's just not Part of the Why thing. can't I just hide in my basement and get really <laughs> successful that way? <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like once that once that path was carved, right? It's like, oh, wait a minute, there's a way to be successful here. You know, everyone kind of follows that path, but then when everyone's following that path, then what happens to it? You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I don't know what happens after that when everyone kind of takes those steps, you know, to do the thing, and then it's like this oversaturated group of people trying yeah. to do the thing. You know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk a little bit about how you know so much about this, because you actually have a, a great depth of knowledge on this. You're, you're in Southern, and you, you, just, you see Matthew Barney, and now you're thinking, I'm going to do something different. I, did you change schools at that point? I did. Um, I saw Matthew Barney. I thought, I'm going to do something different. And one of my friends was telling me that he was taking night classes at the School of Visual Arts in Manhattan. I wondered. I wondered if you went to SVA. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And he said, you know, I'm like skateboarding around Manhattan and taking night classes at SVA. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah, well, that's that's what I'm going to do. 
Yeah. So like, I didn't even look into any other schools. I was like, I'm skateboarding in Manhattan and I'm going to the school of visual arts. And like, that was it. It just, you know, I mean, it, it's sort of this, this thing, right. It's like this kind of way with the, with the yoga, right. It's like something just sort of comes and you're like, Oh, right. That's the thing I'm supposed to be doing, you know? And everyone's like, yeah, but don't you want it? No, it's like, no, no, this is, this is the thing, <laughs> you know? So like, so that was the thing. So I applied and miraculously got in because I, I didn't really have, you know, um, fantastic technical skills And school. Visual arts is like, you know, all the kids who went to the art high schools who were like the best yeah. in the art high schools, you exactly. know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's well, how I ended up there. I, I went to an arts high school in, in New Orleans. I went to the New Orleans center of creative arts and I went to a, um, a portfolio day in Houston and got into SVA and that was that was my dream. Like I'm going to go to New York and I'm going to be Basquiat. Like that was that was the model that I thought I was going to follow, and then meet Andy Warhol, and then be a famous painter. I thought that's how I that was the 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 professional path I was going to follow. You're not really kind of understanding like how incredibly limited that pyramid is to get to the top of, but I really wanted to go, but my, my mom's from Chicago and like New York was, was, was too kind of intimidating for our entire family. So I ended up at the Art Institute of Chicago instead, but that's really, I wanted to skateboard and tag and make and paint on everything and then be Basquiat. <laughs> that's what I wanted. Yeah. So you were there and did that happen for you? Um, <laughs> well, not exactly. Um, I had a professor named Ju Chung and, um, and Ju was my, kind of my favorite, uh, my favorite teacher, I think in school and on all of my, um, years of school. And, um, you know, he was pretty intense. The first day we had, we had a painting class with him. He said, um, if you don't have to be here, uh, you may as well go home now. Just like one of the very first things he said to us, right? Like we all just landed in New York city. We're all excited. And this guy in a very like even tone just says, if you don't need to be here, you should probably go home. And then he kind of explained like what needing to be here means, right? It's like, this is what my soul burns to do. There's no other, this is it, you know, there's no other. And I knew exactly what he was saying right away. I was like, oh yeah, I'm here. You yeah, know, and I need to be here. You can almost look around the room at the other kids and go like, oh yeah, I can see who does not need to be here. <laughs> you know, it's like, yeah. you just could have sort of sorted this out right from the beginning, you know, like, right. this, is, this is how it's going to be. And so um, it didn't really matter to me. I didn't really see myself, you know, I guess I, I had sort of always hoped to end up selling work and maybe getting in that crowd, but I don't know if I ever really desired to be famous. Maybe I already knew that I wasn't going to be able to do that other part, right? That like social part of getting out there and getting to know everybody and being on the scene. Um, I think I maybe already knew that was, that part wasn't going to be my trajectory. Mm -hmm. So I was kind of like at the library all the time, just stacks of books, Mm -hmm. you know, just like, oh, and Gerhard Richter and oh, Toymans and oh, you know, just like digging through one artist leading to another and you know, um, yeah, it just, I don't know if I ever felt 
that way about the whole scene, to be honest. But but excuse me, you ended up at, at Pace Wildenstein. I did. But that yeah. seems like the <laughs> That's step a scene. towards <laughs> the scene, That's a, like a really yeah. important step towards that scene. Could you maybe explain to people who may not know how important Pace Wildenstein is and, and, and what that meant for you to be there and how you got there? Yeah. Um, Pace Gallery, well, it was, well, it was called Pace Wildenstein. It was Pace Wildenstein at the time. Then it was Pace Gallery. Now I think it's just Pace. Um, but they, um, at the time, I would say they were one of the top two or three galleries in the world in terms of the artists they represented and their presence and their sort of the power that they had um, in terms of the work that they were showing. Like someone like Gerhard Richter? Or um, was, he some, was, he across, was he somewhere else? Gerhard Richter was somewhere else. Um, mm-hmm. but, but someone like that. Right. Like uh, Pace had um, Picasso was one of their artists that they represented. Um, right. um, uh, Lucas Samaras, which is a little kind of off the beaten yeah. path, but uh, Ad Reinhardt, Agnes Martin, Donald Judd. Um, Lucas Samaras is the guy with the um, who uh, takes instant photos and then yes. paints on them. Those yes. are fucking amazingly psychedelic. Yeah. Incredible. Those are my what favorite works of his. Polaroids? Polaroids. Yeah, he takes Polaroids and he would just like, fucking mark on them. And they're like, yeah. oh, this is incredible. Can I tell you a little story about, about this? Yeah. At, yeah. At, so at the gallery, my friends and I were talking one day. Um, you know, we worked with the art directly and we facilitated client viewings and, you know, all this stuff. So there was one day that we were talking like, okay, well, if there's a fire one day, right? Like if there's ever a fire in the building, like – what what do we grab like what what work do we take down through the elevator yeah. there we're like and so you know someone's like oh i'm gonna take this ad reinhardt i'm like yeah, but it's too big it's not gonna fit in the stairwell <laughs> you know? yeah. so we had this whole conversation of like what would you take and i said i'll tell you right now i would take the lucas samaris polaroids totally easy to slip in my backpack right yeah. like no problem yeah. um gone forever and yeah, and that's it, right? Like, even if, so, so, you know, so then the question becomes, right? Like, if the fire consumes everything, do I tell anyone that I actually had the Lucas Maris oh, <laughs> right. in my backpack, right? Like, like how do yeah. I go about this? But so there was a day when we had a fire, a fire Ooh. alarm went off, and we didn't know if it was a test or not. And I put the Lucas, oh. the Lucas Maris Polaroids in my backpack and took no. them out. <laughs> no, you didn't. I did. I oh, did. my fucking God. <laughs> so oh. I took them, and my friends grabbed some other things, and we took them out to the sidewalk, and there was no fire. Oh. So like, we went back upstairs, put them back oh. on the shelf, you know, and that was that. But, oh. yeah, it was pretty good. Oh, they were in your backpack. Yeah. Oh, you save the backpack now forever. <laughs> yeah. So, oh. but I did give the, the Polaroids back. You know, I did put them back on the shelf. But yeah, it was tempting. Yeah. They would have wow. tracked you down otherwise. They would have tracked me down. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's yeah. also just as an artist, there's some kind of integrity. I think most of us have, you know, it's like yeah. we respect yeah. the work and its trajectory and all these things. That's so, And you got to sell them on the black market. It just, it's just uh, a whole right. pile of problems. <laughs> a, yeah, there's a lot that's of right. And Lucas um, Samaras' work is not saleable on the black market. I can tell you that right now. It's not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like trying to sell um, like a Van Eyck <laughs> on the black market. It's like, uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you hit a dead end pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so how'd you get there? How'd you get to Pace in the first place? Oh, yeah. Um, well, I, I, my first job out of school was working at the Strand Bookstore. Ooh. And then, which was pretty cool. But then yeah. I got a job working in a carousel factory um, <laughs> deep in Brooklyn, like way out, like East Brooklyn. And so I painted um, carousel horses for a little while. And then uh, one of my professors introduced me to a sculptor friend of his, um, Bernard Vinay, mm. and um, who was looking for an assistant. And so I went from way out East Brooklyn to working in Chelsea in Manhattan, which was, you know, pretty wow. much where they call the galleries are and everything. Yeah. And, um, you know, this artist had like a four floor studio with these huge, you know, Corten steel sculptures and um, paintings. Uh, and um, there was a studio in the basement that he let me use to make my own work. And so, um, so that was kind of like the big step. And then from there, um, you know, some of my friends were getting jobs at galleries. And so I started working for different galleries, like, um, Smack Mellon Gallery, which used oh, to be yeah. Dumbo right. and, um, David Zwarner Gallery and Andrea Rosen and, mm-hmm. um, Zwarner and Worth. And, um, I was doing little projects for a lot of different galleries. And, and then, um, one of my friends who I worked at David Zwarner with, um, brought me on to pace one day and that was it. They just, um, they hired me. And so I started working there uh, full time. Mm. So that's the short, <laughs> that's the short version of how, how I ended long, up. How long were you there? I think I worked there maybe about like eight years total, but it was wow. kind of on and off, you know, like once I, once I started the, you know, getting more into the yoga thing and making the trips to India, it's like, I literally would drain my bank account going to India and then come home and they'd be like, well, sure. You know, like I would just like have a job again and be working at pace again. So, mm-hmm. um, it, yeah. Almost, did it seem really special from the start? You know, <laughs> I was, I was having, um, I was down in Chinatown once, um, I think it was maybe like a backyard uh, beer garden or something, you know, sitting with some friends. And and um, there was a guy who was asking us, you know, like, what, what do you guys do for a living? And we were telling him, you know, yeah, we work at this art gallery. And and he was like, wow, that's so fascinating, you know. And we kind of told him some of the details. And then we said, you know, what do you do? And he said, oh, I work on Wall Street. And he told us, like, what he did. And I was like, that pretty much sounds like what we do. <laughs> just <laughs> like, you know, just that there's, like, art involved, right? It's, yeah. you know, like, there's – people still treat each other really shitty. And it's really intense. And, um, you know, it's by far the most stressful job I had. I mean, it was really – yeah. You know, oh. we're literally running around with artwork worth millions and millions of there was one Mondrian painting was like forty million dollar painting. Oh. You know, that we're like running around with these artworks, like hanging them on the wall and installing them and you know, just the amount it was like a, a hospital for artwork, <laughs> you know. Yeah. It's like an emergency room for artwork is how yeah. we used to say. It. <laughs> you know? So you know, and the personalities of the of the dealers at the gallery, you know, it's like you're working for one gallery, but it's really four different galleries because they're all kind of like at each other's throats trying to like, you know, get the sales and all the things. So, you know, it's it's not um it's maybe not as glamorous as 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 people may envision it to be initially. 
Did you um, feel like um like when it started to lose its its glow did is that where you felt like more attracted to the yoga is that when you started to be more attracted or why you started to be more attracted yeah i think i think so i think maybe more than losing the glow it was just i was done you know like i just couldn't really work in that capacity anymore, you know? And I think one, like one of the things that was a major transformation for me actually was um, looking at the process of making things, right? And that kind of identification with like, I made this drawing, you know? Like that's my drawing and now it's an object and now it's in the world as an object, but it has this attachment to me having made it. Mm-hmm. And there's been always something really attractive to me about, you know, things like music where you play a note and it's gone. Like it's not your yeah. note, you know, like you don't mm-hmm. have something to say, like I made this thing. Even when you make an album, it's, you know, it's not really the same, you know, the sounds kind of have this thing, this quality to them, this sort of fleeting quality that automatically kind of loosens up the ego um, around at least that, that direct connection, you know? And so I, I, I started thinking about like yoga kind of took on that that feeling for me, the sense of like creative freedom. Like I'm, I'm making these shapes and I'm doing these things. They're not mine, but they're transforming me mm-hmm. in this way that I can be in the world, not as a product, but as a living, sensing, you know, loving human. Mm-hmm. You know, and so I felt like, you know, even the way I see like practicing at Eddie's, you know, for those years, it was like a bunch of us had found a, a cleaner, more loving way to say, fuck you. you yeah. know? It's yeah. like it's, It was a punk move in the yeah. same kind of punk move as getting on the skateboard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it's like, you know what? I don't want to do the thing you're going to do. And I'm going to do this other thing. And it's going to program me in such a way where I'm relating to some other aspect of myself that I don't have another way to do in a healthy way right now, mm-hmm. you know? And so instead of saying, fuck you, I'm going to work on me, <laughs> you know, like I'm going to try to do some things that'll like improve the person that, um, or not even improve, but like remove the obstacles that I've placed in my own way and see what's underneath. I'd have to think that your parents we're just as bewildered by your desire to do yoga as to go to art school. Yeah. I mean, you know, when I, so the funny thing is like when I, when I, when I started moving into more of the yoga scene, you know, my parents were like, yeah, but you know, the, the painting, the painting, you know, they were kind of mm-hmm. like, oh, like, what about the, are you still painting? Are you still, you know? Yeah. And then at some point they kind of became convinced that this is just what I had to do and there was no other way. Right. Yeah. And then anytime I kind of like move out to expanding my space, like I tell them, Oh, I'm like studying this thing also with the yoga. They're like, yeah, but you know, the yoga, the yoga, <laughs> you know, it's just yeah, like, yeah, it's yeah. like trying to help to keep, to pull me back to the thing that they're, they now are convinced is going, you know, going to be okay for me. Like I could actually survive doing this thing, right? Right. It's <laughs> yeah. so interesting. I think um, you know, there's this idea that uh Sham Ranganath uh has talked about in in some of the philosophy classes that I've been taking with him. It's the idea of looking at um the practice of yoga is unconservative. And mm. it's funny that like your parents sort of are representing this very conservative um, approach or attitude to life. And then the yoga is like really pushing you and expanding and you're like 
anti-conservatism, you know, you're always pushing uh-huh. past the norm, pushing past, you know, your boundaries in a way and exploring new things. And I think that's really interesting, that contrast, you know, your parents keep holding the conservative space for you. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is my father teaches meditation now. Like I, 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 oh. I, I, I drew my father into taking a 10 day Vipassana course with me oh. and he now teaches meditation at the, at his local YMCA and at the library and stuff. I mean, it's like, you know, but, but it wasn't, but it wasn't from that like kind of conflict, right? It was like from me dropping the conflict, like I stopped getting involved in the conflict and started just being who I was. And that was the thing that started to transform the conversations that we had, you know, and that was the thing that kind of woke them up to like, wow, like maybe our son, even though it seems kind of crazy is onto something, you know, <laughs> like maybe there's like something he's doing that's actually of, of use, you know, to himself and to me, maybe to other people too. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. It's You, you brought up an, an interesting point about, about use there. I, for for decades, I maybe a decade. I really I really struggled with a sense of of identity and and failure that I had failed at art school. I had failed in my career, and I had a hobby. And I would I would tell people on purpose that I painted as a hobby, just just to kind of stick it in their face that I that I wasn't really you know people that really knew me. I was really just trying to irritate them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like yeah, I'm a I'm a hobbyist, and people get upset. No, you're a real painter. Said, no, no, not no. I'm not actually. Um, I'm a I paint as a hobby, and then I I realized I realized one day that I had taken yoga as an elective in art school, and that's how I got into Ashtanga yoga. There's an Ashtanga yoga elective, and I'd actually made a career out of my elective at art school. I was like. Oh, in that way, maybe, maybe, yeah, I, I have done something purposeful with the, the instinct to make art. And that's, you said something like that, that you started using your body in a creative way to make art. And that's, that, yeah, that really resonates with me because it's, it's a lot like the, the performative art genre where people are using their body mm-hmm. in some way to make work very similar in the way that Matthew Barney does. Right. And it's, 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 it's not necessarily within the frame of how art is understood, but it's, but the way that you describe it, it very much is an art making activity. Yeah. And, and what's really fascinating about it, I think, I mean, well, one of the things that's fascinating to me, at least, is that it's outside of, you know, we're not looking from the outside form. I mean, I know this is hard, you know, we're all kind of working on that, right? Like, it's not a dance. It's not a choreography. Mm-hmm. It's not really what it looks like on the outside. You know, we say that over and over again. But that's one of the things that's like, you know, there's a, there's something else more subtle going on there that's like kind of absurd, you know, mm-hmm. like you're doing this thing and it's creating something and it's peeling layers away and it's doing something, but there's really no evidence of it, right? Like yeah. mm-hmm. it's not, it's beyond measure. It's not, it doesn't fit into 
the way our society feels a need to have data, you know, like, Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting, some of the scientific data, you know, and research they do around yoga. But at the same time, I kind of love it when it's dataless, you know, I kind of love it when it's like, just have the experience, you know, like, let's just have the experience. And we are creating something, but it doesn't have to be measurable. It doesn't have to be like, you know, goal-oriented. I mean, I don't think it should be goal-oriented, to be honest with you, but mm-hmm. it doesn't need to be goal-oriented. There's something about that lived experience that it, it is performative art in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just we have to kind of maybe shift the way we see what asana is, the way we see what yoga is, and the way we look at art, you know? You just have to kind of shift our perspective a little bit, and then maybe we can create a container that allows that those things to live in that space together. Yeah, I love that. Um idea of like you saying like the music or even like with a dance you know it's it's ephemeral ephemeral right it's here it's manifesting and then it goes and it's manifesting Uh, and it goes and you can't hang on to it you can't necessarily even attach yourself to it right and it when you're talking about the asana like as an embodiment of the same quality I, i really resonated with me in this idea that also the asanas is in practice is like has this ephemeral quality and it's really you know mystical at its essence that you connect with this arising of of this inspiration or this mm. this art within yourself and then it goes and and like you say there's not so much of an attachment as a human being you think to yourself like I don't even know how I did that mm. right but then when you take a photo <laughs> of an asana and then you like you know, frame it or you post it on Instagram or something. It's more like a painting or a piece of artwork because now it's like an object that's forever not moving in a a way. It's a kind of residue of the, of the artistic act. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a dead thing. Um, But it also, it does speak to an audience. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. The, I, the, I don't know the connection of the two, like how the art form can be both living, but then also kind of frozen. And then, and our relationship to those two different things is very different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. You know, even like along, maybe a little bit along those lines, um, I was listening to Dr. Svoboda recently um, giving a talk and he was talking about um, Indian music and like the musical traditions of India and the, you know, and, and our musical um, traditions in the West. And he was saying that um, the way he sees it, at least, is that Indian music is composed to then there be in relationship with the musicians, right? So when the musicians are playing it, they're enlivening that composition, you know, and they're feeling into it and there's room for it to kind of move a little bit, right? It's not Mm -hmm. fixed. Like it has to be done exactly this way. Otherwise it's not correct, you know? And he was saying that he feels in our, in our tradition, it's like music is composed or written to be done exactly this way. And it's not really about how the musicians come in and Mm -hmm. kind of, you know, manipulate that or, you know, figure it out live, you know, in, in a, in a moment in time. And so I'm not sure exactly how that connects with what you were just saying, Harmony, but somehow it made me think of it. Yeah. I just saw, 
a video, and actually I had a conversation with, with our son yesterday about this video. Leonard Bernstein was describing, um, it might have been Bill Evans who was saying this, Miles Davis's a piano player mm-hmm. who was a classical musician as well, but they were describing how historically uh, classical music of the 17th century was actually quite a bit like jazz in that uh, the composers of the era would play extemporaneously and play freely and improvise freely because that's what you're doing with, with these Lydian scales. You're able to do so much more and play so much more freely. Mm. And so it is jazz at that point. And yet at a certain point, the audience started to have an expectation of, of uh, behavior. And so they started writing down exactly what their compositions were, and they had to be played exactly that way because that's how people liked it. And thus, classical music became rigid. Yeah, and that sounds familiar. Started out as <laughs> as improvised. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Oh, we're, yeah. We're, yeah. Sorry, yeah. I'm just you know. Yeah, yeah that's good. Yeah, that sounds we, familiar. We can talk more about about that in just a moment. Um, I have a I have a quote here from you that I wanted to read. Oh, God. And um, <laughs> it says, "What propels a person to make life decisions that clearly aren't a recipe for success?" by Western standards. And this reminded me in our conversation of the way in which in a, in a tribe, there might be a place reserved for a shaman who connected to something intense and something deeper is the most colorful person in, in the community, in the tribe, and is there to heal people, but also kind of there to make art in a living way that enlivens people even, and that might be a way of healing them. And I don't think we have that. We don't, we don't set aside space and wealth for shamans in our community, but I feel like that's what, what you're describing with the art making process and the way that certainly the way in which you um, defined your yoga practice. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's really beautifully put. Thank you for saying it that way. I think that's a really nice way to explain um, what I was intimating, for sure. Hmm. I wonder if you could speak more about about yoga and rigidity. That seemed to, I I felt like that maybe what you were, uh, when you said that that was very familiar to you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it goes into, you know, it's like I, my brain starts to go back to some of the things we've already discussed and then forward into, you know, what is it to be, what is it to be in a lived experience? You know, what is it to look at some of the concepts we may have around perfection, you know, mm-hmm. or how something is supposed to look, or maybe even how it's supposed to feel, you know, um, you know what? What are what are our ideas around um, how these things live and breathe? Right? Like, there's um, there's a, a film called "If the Dancer Dances," 
Um, one of my very close friends was one of the producers. And it's a film about um, Merce Cunningham mm. and a reproduction of one of his dances. Uh, and it was maybe a few years ago, they put this kind of reproduction of the dance together. And there was like a, you know, this discussion between the the, the Cunningham Foundation and the people, you know, doing the dance. And, and what I found most fascinating about the film is this interplay of, so this is the way Merce wanted the dance to go. And this is exactly the way he taught it, right? So yeah. you have one person that's trying to get these characters that are playing the parts in the dance to do things exactly, exactly as like the movements, the wrist movements, every finger, every single thing has to be exactly as, as Merce asked it to be. But... When Merce put the dance together, he had specific people in mind. He was actually pulling people that he was meeting into the dance and changing it for them. Like, you know, basically like adapting their characters um, and moving the pieces of the dance around to make sense with that person in this particular time, in this particular place. Right. And so he's... Um, you know, if you watch the dance from when it was made, I can't remember, maybe, um, I don't really remember the date, but if you watch it and you watch, you know, the, those dancers and you watch Merce dancing, it's like unbelievable. It's like something you can't, you cannot reproduce. It's impossible, right? Mm. So you come to this place of, so here's the material and you're asking these people who were not put in the position to do this dance by Merce himself, who had this very clear vision of how things needed to be done, but was also willing to play with things in time as they happened with these people, right? Mm -hmm. And so it just, that part of it to me became so fascinating, right? And I kept thinking about the Ashtanga tradition. I kept thinking about like, okay, you have this form and this is the way it's supposed to be done. And how does that, how does that work? Like, how do we meet people where they are in the world with their lived experiences, right? So I feel like the last few years for me have just been this, like, huge exploration around, like, you know, what could be perceived as rigidity. Um, mm-hmm. And what that means to take something that's quote-unquote fixed and how to use that as a tool, Um to understand ourselves rather than to beat ourselves up, you know, or to hold ourselves to some kind of standard of how things are supposed to be or have to be, you know, it just seems impossible um, to do that. And at the same time to have this practice be open to every body, right? Every colored body, every sized body, every aged body. Like, what does that mean? You know? And like, how do we really see people for who they are instead of kind of impressing upon them this thing and keeping it a discipline at the same time? That's the key. That's the that's the that's where the rubber meets the road, right? Is how do you maintain a discipline, mm-hmm. which is about control over the individual. <laughs> and control a group of 20 individuals in the room in, in such a way as to convince them that it's fair and it's not. <laughs> and then also allow for their idiosyncratic selves to to manifest and to allow for their injuries. And I, I remember one day I had a lady in my class who just needed to listen to the radio while she did yoga. And I just like, you know, this is this is a step too far. <laughs> I, I'm not going to allow this. 
And I had to tell her that she couldn't do it anymore. And then she stopped coming. Um, and now that's the only way that I practice now. <laughs> I put on my ear pods and I put on my Miles Davis albums. And that's the only way that I can tune all the fucking shit out. <laughs> is yeah. with, you know, the, my modal blues albums. Um, I think that's a really, in, those are such great questions and also you know i struggle with the idea too like the the discipline like how do you continue to push your own boundaries like we were talking about to challenge yourself to not just give in right and even with the students how do you make allowances for you know different student situations but like you know, sometimes you you know drinking a, a half a bottle of wine every night isn't helpful for the yoga practice, and so we're not, one of we're the, not totally convinced. Of that. <laughs> one of the best <laughs> benefits, say, Is of there like, data? <laughs> <laughs> one of the benefits, say, of like stopping and like and like having students sit in, in a place within their practice is that they have to start to examine their life. Right. And that there's all these other factors that are influencing your physical experience in life. And if you just sort of make allowances for where people are at, at any given point in time, you never come up against that, that adversity or you never get challenged to um, change or even to look at if you want to change or where your priorities are, what's more important to you. So it's it's such an interesting, um, all those questions that you, you just brought up are so interesting to think about. And I, I don't know if there's like any answers and that's kind of the beauty of them really. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that the other part of that harmony is that, you know, it really is so dependent on the ego, right? Like what, what is the makeup of each one of our egos? Like, how does that work? You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. who's being lazy and who just has mental resistance? You know what I mean? Like, like, yeah. what is, like is there a physical laziness? Is there a mental laziness? Like, like how does that all work, right? And like, those are the things that are it's wonderful about having a long-term relationship with someone is that there's really no way out of that. Those things are going to come back around, you know? And then we can start to sort of recognize like, ah, oh, okay, I see the qualities, um, that are propelling this person, you know, they either want to reinforce who they are, you know, um, and kind of build that sort of ego structure, you know, there's a whole bunch of things going on there. Um, But I think starting to kind of look at those things, right. And, but, but allowing those things to be in play, I, I, I feel like is a really important thing right now. I feel like at this particular time and place, it's really important to, not that we need to be like psychologists or therapists or something, but to be able to understand the nuance of, you know, the human being, you know, to really understand Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, right? Mm -hmm. Like to really understand how the human being works and to be able to approach each individual person with a willingness and an openness to see them as they are and to work with that person as they are. Um, and, you know, we're really taking guesses, and in my opinion, right? Like, <laughs> because we don't really know what projection this person's offering us. 
Right. You know, yeah, so there's so many in in the presence of an observer. That's right. All things do. <laughs> um, I I had a friend uh, a couple of years ago at a moment of of deep crisis in our Ashtanga community. And I remember she said to me, um, I was in a, I was in a hotel room in Milwaukee and I, I called her because this was, we were all really troubled. And she said to me, you know, I just got this letter and it said, there's going to be new standards and there's going to be a standard of conduct um, within the Ashtanga yoga community to the, to the KPJ AYI and now the Sharat Joyce Institute. And she said, I can't sign this standard of, of conduct. Uh, for one, it says, if I don't do it, my certification, because she was certified, my certification will be stripped from me. And I, I don't believe in that. I don't believe my certification can be stripped, that that thing is mine and it's permanent. It was promised to me as something permanent. So I'm not going to do this thing. I, and so she didn't have her certification stripped for not doing it. So that seemed like maybe um, a step too far, but she certainly made a choice that this was, this was too standardizing. This was too much for her. And I wanted to ask you, I, I know that you've spoken to the, spoken about this on another podcast, but I just, I wanted to talk about this whole situation and your own choice that, that you made, Tim. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny when I started thinking about this and thinking about having this conversation again, I feel like it's, I feel like it was like 22 years ago or something (laughs) with everything that's happened in the last year. It's like a lifetime ago that I, you know, that I made this decision. Um, you know, for me, it was, um, it was a, it was maybe another version of the, if you don't need to be here, don't be here thing, you know, it's just like something, something didn't make sense to me. And I'm not really a huge fan of hanging on to things for a super long time if they don't make sense to me. And I feel like I've made quite a few difficult decisions in my life along those same lines. And so, you know, I really sat with the decision for, for a while. And, and for me, I think the thing that flipped the switch for me was the last time um, Sherat was in was in New York, in Brooklyn, um, just a couple of years ago, I guess. I can't remember how long ago now, within the last year or two. It was only a year and a half ago, Tim. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Okay. Can you believe it? I yeah. don't know. I mean, guys, like being a parent and pandemic and you know, know. systemic racism, I don't even know what's going on anymore. It's totally it like, does. It feels like 20 years ago. It does. So, um, you know, uh, I think I think that conference after that last lead class really kind of did it for me. And it was that Sherat talked about that was the we, we had all, we all had breakfast together. Oh yes, that's Stephen. right. That's right. It was that same time. It was that same time. That's right. Okay. Yep. Wow. Um, what a lovely yeah. breakfast. Yeah, it did. Um, I remember. I remember the table we sat at. Yeah, me too. Me too. Um, so, the conference was 
kind of the same old, like, it's so important to have a guru, and this is why it's important to have a guru, and guru, and guru, and parampara. And I just, for me, I have a really hard time wrapping my head around all of the things that are possible to talk about, right, in the yogic canon, right? Mm -hmm. There are so many things to talk about so many interesting things to, you know, avenues to go down in terms of talking about yoga and to, to listen to the guru conversation, the guru talk again and again and again. It's so hard for me to not see it as an implicit thing that Sharat's referring to himself as the guru and he's the person you should come see. Yeah. And that's just, I could not wrap my mind around that, you know, in terms of- he was valuable as a guru, just that he was asking or demanding. That's what it felt like to me. It felt like it's, it feels implicit. Mm -hmm. And I don't know what the website's like now, but I, cause I haven't gone there in a year, but when I went before it was like, you know, guru Sharat Joyce and guru this and guru that. And I just can't, that to me, that's like an implicit, like I am the guru, but there's no guru without relationship, right? Mm. There's no guru without someone deciding that the person's a guru. And for me, those relationships are private. Those relationships are something that you have that doesn't become part of some larger, you know, just imagine some person for the first time going to Sharat's website. They're thinking about going to Mysore, blah, 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 right? And they mm-hmm. go on there and the first word they see is guru. Paramaguru, yeah. It's it, Paramaguru. It's implicit. It's implicit yeah. from the very beginning. This person is the guru. Mm-hmm. And for us, I can I can totally, you know, that's fine for me. But to think about, you know, newer people coming in and to have that be an implicit part of the relationship you're entering into, I just couldn't do it anymore, you know? And I think that that implicitness, that kind of like, it feels like it falls under the authoritarian umbrella to me, yeah. you know? And like, this is how it is kind of thing. And given given the circumstances of everything that's happened with our community in the last few years in terms of the um, sexual abuse that was brought up, you know, with Patabi Joyce and and Sharat's like non-response and then kind of response and all the things, it's just like whatever happened, in my opinion, that's the part that needs to change. That implicit, like I am the guru, I am all-knowing, whatever it is, that part is the part that needs to shift in order for for things to change um, on a larger scale. And while I believe that the guru relationship could be very valuable for people, and why why I while I see that you know Shirak may be someone's guru, I can I can see that and accept it and all the things. I don't think it should be coming from his end. And something about that right. really stuck with me, and so that I just was- couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> Coming up for mm-hmm. us, for Harmony and I, in our generation, we, we kept hearing from the older students, and you'd read on the on the newfangled websites that were just being built, Pata- Shri K. Patabi Joyce, affectionately referred to by his students as Guruji. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes cultural. It's a cultural choice. It's like, yeah, we all call him Guruji. It's kind of nice. It means... You know, someone with a lot of gravity and G is this affectionate term. It's cool. And yet to insist on being called Paramaguru and to be told that you have to call him that in conference, um, 
that became a, that does it becomes unseemly. And I, I had thought that perhaps your decision to give up or to renounce your authorization had come because of of maybe Sharat's disrespect to the older students that he said it's their fault that no one stopped Guruji from being handsy with the female students. I thought it came from there, or I thought it maybe it it came from, um, you know, maybe the way that Nigel Marshall had his authorization stripped just for collecting the material on on a website, but but actually that it was about the the authoritarianism. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the crux of it. I definitely those other things were were troubling to me. Um, you know, there's. There's, <laughs> it's an interesting thing, right? Like I really, really appreciate um, my time with Sharad and I appreciate him as a teacher. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that, you know, I had a relationship with him truly. Um, and at the same time, you know, and there's something fantastic about how, like the way that Sharad holds a neutral space to me. Like when I go in, it's like, it seems fairly neutral, right? Mm-hmm. But then there's also something really troubling about that neutrality in some in some instances, right? Mm-hmm. Like if things are not really addressed because, well, this is kind of a neutral space, right? And we're learning a lot about the way those things work as well within, you know, our communities in terms of racism. It's the same thing. You know, it's like, you know, we grew up thinking you don't talk about race. That's what makes it a thing, right? Yeah. Right. And now it's like, it's really important to talk about it. You know, and so some of us are trying to find racism. Right, right. It's tricky, right? So now some of us are trying to find ways to talk about it because it, you know, it needs to be talked about, but like it's really complicated. It's not, it's not that easy to figure out how to talk about it when there's a history of like you don't talk about it, you know, Mm -hmm. like. I have a friend who's, you know, this, uh, a black person and I just, you know, I just see them as they are and I don't really pay attention. You know, it's like, but then you're not seeing them as, as the whole person that they are, right? And their lived experience in the world. And so there's something around that question, right? About seeing someone truly as they are, you know, and I've made mistakes around these things. I'm not saying I have, you know, some perfect idea of how these things need to be done, but something felt muddied in the community to me around some of these issues. Something did not feel clear and the neutrality wasn't doing it for me anymore. And yes, I mean, there were things like, you know, Nigel, um, I don't know exactly why he was um, kicked off the list. Um, I don't think anyone does. I don't know. He told me when the moment it happened, he told me that it happened. And he said that that was... That was why? that was why, because there was no he other. Started a new group on there, Facebook. Or there something. was it no. Was so ridiculous. There was no other activity that would right. explain it. He wasn't told specifically. I don't think he was given a reason, though. Well, Sharat didn't email him. No, he was just kicked off right in the midst of his his um, interest in in starting a new Facebook group and collecting material and and voices, as you just said, and having a dialogue. And from his perspective, he was kicked off, and he was—he had his his really his livelihood stripped from him for wanting to have a dialogue, which is not what an authoritarian wants or seeks. Yeah, <laughs> I mean that. Yeah, that kind of spells it out, right? Like, yeah, you don't want 
you don't want someone to look into something that doesn't align with what you want them to align with, <laughs> right? <Yeah>. Like <laughs> that brings up some discomfort, I would imagine. For sure. Well, I, I was uncomfortable. You know, I was, I was ashamed. Um, I had a, I had a little. I wrote out a little speech here. Um, my, uh, my very, my, my beloved teacher, Guy Donahue, told me that when that coming out against realizing that that he was complicit in Karen Rain's uh, suffering um, and in the continual abuse of other students going forward generationally, that he now felt an incredible sense of freedom in being, uh, say, ostracized, that he was no longer held to anyone. He was no longer held to uh, Patabi Joyce's standard or to Sherat's standard. And so when you made your decision to give up your authorization and Nigel Marshall had his authorization stripped from him, uh, I remember feeling very compromised and I was ashamed of myself and I was angry. Uh, I had a mortgage. My income was dependent on the goodwill that I had within the Ashtanga yoga community at that time. It's not anymore. And I just want to say that I'm, I'm, I'm very proud of your decision to give up your authorization. And I thought it showed enormous courage. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I appreciate hearing that. I'm sorry, Harmony, did I interrupt you? No, it's, I just, it is, it's such a courageous decision to, um, I think, make a stand for, for, from your authentic self, from your authentic truth and to, um, you know, go against a, a group of, of people or per, a perceived group of people that, that you are friends with, you know, it's, it's, hard to, to make a stand against what all of the people that you love and are friends with are kind of a part of, right? Yeah. It's disruptive. I don't yeah. think we've actually spoken since you did it. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. We speak online all the time. Do we? <laughs> no, no, yeah. I mean, I've commented on your posts <laughs> that are amazing, but, you know, <laughs> you know, you're, you know, but it's, I guess that's speech, but I, we haven't actually had a conversation right. on the phone or in person since then. And, and I've never had the opportunity to, to defend myself for, for being compromised. And I've never been able to say how um, proud I am of, of your choice, but it's still disruptive. It still leaves me in a place like, I don't know, I don't know what I should do actually right now. Uh, I feel like I have a, I have a clear sense of what I would do if another ball dropped or another shoe dropped. Um, but I'm a little bit in, in, in limbo at the moment. I wanted, I wanted to know, I'm, I, I'm concerned. I want to know how, how is it all going since what repercussions have there been? What, what's gone on? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely have lost some friendships, you know, and, and it wasn't, it wasn't so clear why the friendships were lost, but there's definitely a few people that really meant a lot to me in my life that we just don't really, you know, 
have conversations anymore. And I know they sort of fortified their position on how they feel about Chirot. And that, you know, that makes me kind of sad because I don't really feel, um, I don't really feel that, um, I don't really want to be oversimplified as a human being, you know what I mean? And having, <laughs> as having like taken, taken like a side in something, yeah. you know, even in all the political stuff, like I don't feel like I've taken a side, like there may be some things that I'm adamantly against, but you know, I don't, I just, the whole side thing kind of makes me crazy. Like it really doesn't, um, I know it has its purpose, but it's, it's challenging. So I don't really feel that I want to be oversimplified as a human being in that way, you know, like yeah. that because I'm not going to go to Mysore anymore. Um, and because I don't agree with the implicit guru thing. I mean, I mean, I've been working on this kind of, you know, stuff for years. Like I've been reading, you know, reading things that have kind of led me. I've been reading about authoritarianism and I've been reading about things that have led me to this decision for years. You know, it was just a matter of being able to see it yeah. that way for myself and to be honest with you, like the day that I did that, the next day my practice felt lighter. I felt like I'm free. Like I don't really, the, the things that were hanging on me, the baggage I was carrying around that was released. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like I was free from charade or something. You know, it wasn't, it's not like that at all. I was free from my own bullshit. You know, yeah. like I was like, okay, I don't have to really go around and around with that anymore in my head. I can just kind of move on right and grieve and and transform and see what's next and my students don't really give a shit to be honest with you like I, <laughs> yeah. you know, i'm like hey guys like i'm sure maybe people won't come to me if they see that i'm not authorized and i don't really care i don't i honestly don't care like for me you know being being in a mysore room being a teacher is you know i i read once and i wish i could remember where i read this but I read once that love is being able to see the qualities in someone else that they're not able to see in themselves. Mm, so beautiful. being able to see that person's truth in a way that they are just not capable of seeing it. Right. So like being in a room and being with a group of people is about seeing things in people that they maybe can't see in themselves and being able to, support um, the group in a way that individually they can start to see those things about themselves. Mm -hmm. Right? Like it's about, yeah. it's about love. It's not about parampara. It's not about guru. It's not about, you know, like ultimately at the end of the day, it's about love. And I don't mean that in some sappy, you know, I mean that in a very like fiery, like this yeah. is about being together and being present with one another and figuring out who we are and, you know, walking together to figure out who we are so we can transform in more useful ways for humanity and, you know, for the environment and the universe and everything else. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it's yeah. a much larger thing. You know, it's like quite often I'm talking to a student about some asana thing they're working on. They're like, oh, I just can't get my leg behind my head. And it's been three years and I don't know what to do. And it's like, well, you know, you can like fixate on getting your leg behind your head or you can allow your soul to unite with the supreme consciousness. And you know, <laughs> like, like, yeah, you know, I'm not yeah. really sure which one's more desirable. But for me, yeah. I'm like, man, give me that supreme consciousness. <laughs> you know, I've learned anything from Lucas Samaras. It's that. 
Give me the Polaroids. I don't want anything yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, Guy gave me a, a book once early on that really helped me. Um, it was My Life with an American Guru. And it's uh, the Swiss guy's take on Andrew Cohen, who was um, deemed himself enlightened and started a, a cult. And people really were attracted to him. He was magnetic. And he's like, this guy's actually really got something. And he attracted a whole group of people, but he could never really build it up very big because he kept alienating people with these kind of weird, you know, emotional, arbitrary, and hostile decisions. And at the end of the book, I think the takeaway for me was that being in a cult and then kind of understanding that you're in a cult and then leaving it to some degree it leaves you a little bit wounded and there's only a kind of a select group of people who are also in that cult that you can really talk to. Um, but it gave me a frame of reference that's like, I can see when things are, it gave me a, yes, a frame of reference where I can see when things are getting a little culty and I can say that's culty. I'm not doing that. That's, that's horrible. <laughs> And then at the same time, Harmony says, well, you're the one that fucking prostrates yourself to Sherat. You were one of the first ones. It's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> That's cool. You know, but it was uh, it was performative to a degree. We're all um, working it out. We're all working it out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I also like, I, I have, a, I think it's a great book. If you, if you, if you come across it, um, my life with American guru, um, my life with I, I, it's like Vander Schultz or something like that. That's his name. Um, I think it points to a very interesting thing. Like we're all working it out that that life is messy, and I think you touched on that even like with the situations we're in now. Um, you know, as as a global community, it's like there's not. It's it's messy and we have to come through this together. And I, I love that, that, you know, you brought up that we have to love each other through this and we have to also love ourselves through this because, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, the parampara or a, a cult or, you know, guru or who's in or who's out. It, I mean, it really kind of always comes down to who's in and who's out. Yeah. And who feels left out? Yeah. And it's it was interesting, like during this time, you know, there's there's been this sort of, you know, movement to to community and and um de what do you say? Uh like when you take it off the center. Decentralizing. Thank you. Oh, Decentralizing. Um <laughs> you know, the power, right? And I think what's kind of fascinating with this COVID situation is it's really done that almost to a certain extent in that I feel there's a lot more connections happening between people and not so much focus on like, everyone has to go to this one place to be considered a legitimate practitioner or a legitimate student. It's like yeah. we're all at home in our own little nests, you know, trying to figure things out. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really nice point. There's something about it that's loosened up 
mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. loosened up the parameters. And even, you know, that in terms of um, Sherrod and the institution and everything, how, you know, he was, I guess the request was if people want to continue to be authorized or whatever it was, they had to contact him. Right. Right. So now yeah. whoever doesn't want to be just kind of remain silent. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They're, not, like, they're all no longer authorized. Yeah. Didn't have the time to write the email or whatever, yeah. whatever yeah. it was. <laughs> yeah. I know a bunch of people who are no longer authorized because yeah. they, they, because of, of a silent uh, protest. Uh-huh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny for me on a personal level, I'm glad I made the decision before it came down to that because it really made me stand in my choice a little more strongly, right. you yeah. know, and kind of face, it made me face the situation a little more clearly instead of just kind of like hiding behind a tree, which is, you know, totally fine. But just for myself personally, yeah. I feel happy that I, um, made the decision on my own beforehand. Yeah. I think it's interesting just with like coming back to this idea of when we all sort of started this yoga practice that it was very punk and it was, you know, we handmade were self-made. Yeah. And we were also kind of against, uh, the norm against society against culture against culture and and then and what happens when when culture becomes you know when rigid. yoga becomes the culture too right <laughs> and or, it's like no when the longer... punk scene becomes rigid and and yeah. who's punk who's not punk yep. it's 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 it become it's that's when it's bullshit right well it takes it out of the lived experience right mm -hmm. and that's really kind of what it comes down to i think is that you know we have all these conversations about like uh and mice are this and shrot that and secret breakfast and blah 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 <laughs> like whatever <laughs> <laughs> you know? i mean you knew i wasn't gonna get through a conversation without talking about secret breakfast right <laughs> <laughs> but you miss it right you miss those oh of course i'm not yeah i'm not saying that yeah. you know me but too. Like, I miss those Italy's too. <laughs> uh, but you know, and like some of the places I don't even know the names of, right? The like place on the hill or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you know, there's there there are all of those you know kinds of things and the conversations about the awesome of this and this person said that and blah blah blah. But it's like you know, at the end of the day, it's none of those things are in embodied right like the practice is the part that's embodied that's the part where it it happens i mean when all this stuff came up a couple of years ago um you know when when karen rain um spoke out a little a little more and maybe someone it was anik lucas i think maybe yeah, spoke out right. even earlier i don't know the timeline and and i apologize but you know when when it kind of came to a head um maybe initiated by the Me Too movement a little bit, kind of pushed it For forward. Sure. Yeah. Um, when that all came to a head, you know, I, I have to say, like, I remember the very morning that I went to practice and I, I felt like something had drained from my body. Yeah. Like something wasn't in my body anymore. And it was really interesting. And that went on for quite a while. Mm -hmm. yeah. You know, and only came back really after I um decided to, you know, ask to have my name removed from the list. Wow. And then that kind of like the, the next day, this spirit sort of, you know, I'll just call it a spirit, like kind of came back to me. Mm. Um, wow. You know, it felt that, like a very wow. direct correlation between those experiences for me wow. personally. 
that really resonates because I'm not sure I'd put a, a finger on it, but it, that's the the drive to practice has not been the same since since that 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 uh, that culmination of events. I think for Harmony and I both, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's been really, really challenging on on many levels. You know, I mean, what what we're doing is crazy. I mean, we're like superheroes, right? Like anyone anyone who does this practice is a fucking superhero from day one. Like, you know, it's like what we're doing is just tremendous and takes a tremendous amount of, you know, effort and conviction, you know, and to have that conviction kind of shaken and and yeah. confused it's 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 kind of traumatizing and so to to go into those spaces and go into those depths within the practice itself you know in, in a in a way where we're able to access that vulnerability in ourselves maybe feels like a dangerous place yeah you know yeah. because there's some trauma around it yeah. there's some trauma I, about about like checking out or feeling feeling you know vulnerable or missing something you know it's brought up a lot of huge questions even around like patriarchy you know and like what like what are the male qualities of this practice and how do we work with those male qualities rather than let them let them consume us right Right. Mm -hmm. and then from the male qualities it's like okay well then there's the fire aspect right so then you're talking about you know the 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 elements and you know we don't want to add fire to fire (laughs) i mean just like all of the kind of different ways of looking at how we relate to something in a way that doesn't destroy us or consume us or mm-hmm. get us to check out, you know, yeah. and, and miss something. Yeah. It's all questions. I have no, I have no <laughs> answer to any of these things. I'm really, so I'm really grateful that you would come and share with us on our podcast. It It's, it's very, uh, anxious making and very and it's a little it's a little dangerous and for all of us involved and I'm <laughs> and I'm grateful that you would that you would you would give us that time and give us your energy and I just want to say thank you for that. Yeah, thank you both. I'm really I'm really grateful to be invited and to have this conversation. It's it's been a little while since we've talked. Yeah, there's and, so much depth and wisdom to everything that you've brought up and all of these incredible questions. I just hope so much that uh, all the people listening really like sit with them and think about them. I know I'm going to, cause it's, it's, those are the real, that's the real yoga practice really. Right. It's mm-hmm. trying to find the middle way and, and not, you know, go too far in, in either direction. Yeah. We'll, we'll yeah. all be sitting with it together. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Where where can people find you, Tim? Um I have a website. <laughs> it's um Atta A T H A uh dash room dot com. Okay. And you're teaching online, are you right now? Um I am. I'm I'm mostly doing kind of one on ones and mentorship and teaching some chanting and pranayama meditation and then I'm kind of popping into the MISO room from time to time. So it's mostly group practice um, on their own. But people would be well served to sit with you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, it's beautiful. We'll give your little girl a big hug and a big kiss for us. Oh, thank you. And your she's little boy a, as well. Yeah, she's such a little angel. Oh, thank you. 
we're gonna say goodbye, but don't don't say goodbye. I mean, um, let me see. How we're gonna I... delete this part out. We're gonna delete. Don't this... hang up. Don't hang up. Don't close your computer. Don't close your computer. <laughs> but we're gonna say goodbye now. <laughs> but don't go. I'll be right here. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, Tim. It was so wonderful to have you Thank on you. our show today. Thank you.